This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Late on September 23rd, a Pima County Superior Court judge effectively allowed Arizona's 19th century ban on nearly all abortions to go back into effect. That's at odds with a 2022 law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And just this week, Maricopa County's top prosecutor reversed herself and said she wouldn't prosecute women for getting an abortion. Facing a charged political environment, Arizona officials have struggled to clarify what is legal and what is now forbidden after the U.S. Supreme Court in June erased federal abortion rights. The Pima County ruling sparked another round of anger and anguish from Democrats. It's definitely shocking. I started crying. It's sad and scary. There's so many mixed feelings that I have. We will fight and fight and fight in the courts for the rights of women to access reproductive care and abortion in this state. Most Republicans prefer to let the latest development pass quietly. Attorney General Mark Burnvich says he applauds that decision, saying, quote, this will continue to protect the most vulnerable Arizonans. A statement also coming in from Governor Ducey's office, not directly commenting on the decision itself, but saying, quote, Governor Ducey was proud to sign the 15-week ban, which goes into effect tomorrow. Arizona remains one of the most pro-life states in the country. Ducey there, of course, referring to the law that was passed this year by state Republicans banning abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Early voting in Arizona's midterm is just around the corner, and it's clear that the battle over abortion isn't going away. You're listening to The Gaggle, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we take a closer look at the state's political stories that affect you, with reporters, experts, and special guests. I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. Today, we're talking about how the abortion issue could affect the outcome of November's midterms, and we'll compare the potency of this issue to one from a generation ago. Joining us is Elaine Kmark. She's the founding director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution and also a fellow in governance studies there. Elaine, welcome to the gaggle. Well, thanks for having me. So for those who are watching politics closely these days, they may have seen what seems like the growing importance of the Dobbs ruling striking down federal abortion rights. And it's a natural question how this will impact the midterms. It's clear, Elaine, that it matters, but give our listeners a sense of what you consider significant on that front at the moment. This is the kind of issue we've never seen before. Unlike, say, the economy or inflation or immigration. This is something that affects people deeply and personally, and it affects over 50% of the population and over 50% of the electorate. 
So the interest that women have in this issue is really not equivalent to interest they have in other issues. And I think it's just vastly more important, and I think it'll be more important than anybody is even predicting now. So the greatest political energy on this issue right now seems like it's on the side that lost. First, is that right? And who does this issue bring into the electorate that wasn't already in? Well, I think it brings two groups in. It brings in young women who perhaps were not voters or were only marginally interested in politics. And it brings in, in a switching way, suburban women. Uh, Suburban women have been the key to Biden's success in 2020 and to Democratic success in 2018. And they could very well be the key to more Democratic success in this coming midterm. When you mentioned suburban women, it's been clear from my reporting for some time that is a very coveted demographic. Republicans have wanted desperately to win back in their efforts to retake the House and the Senate. How significant is the issue of abortion rights for that demographic? Well, I think it's enormously significant for that demographic because Remember, it's not just the right to abortion, right? It is the feeling around this issue that somehow a group of men are trying to control women's lives as they have done for millennia before now. And so I think that even apart from abortion, I mean, I'm a Roman Catholic, practicing Catholic, I would never have abortion. I would never want my daughters to have one, et cetera. But there's, there's something around this abortion issue that speaks to men's control over women's lives in every fashion. And this is something that women have spent a long time fighting against. And so I think that it's got a ramification that's bigger than simply, can you have an abortion when you need to have an abortion? there's three developments that indicate that this is a big deal, okay? One is that we've had five special elections, but four of them were more traditional. The Alaska one kind of doesn't count. They pitted Democrat against Republican, and that those are the only four we have so far this year, right? In every single one of those elections, they were post the Dobbs decision. In every single one, The Republican underperformed Trump. In other words, the Republican candidate did worse than Trump did in 2020. And the Democratic candidate did better than Biden did, which tells you that there's something going on in the electorate. And this is, by the way, in the middle of a year where everybody was saying it's a Republican year, it's a Republican wave. Okay, so that's significant. The second thing is that what we know of voter registration is that it looks like there's been a surge in voter registration and more women are registering to vote than men, as many as 35% to 9%, according to Upshot in the New York Times. We've never seen that before either. And then the third one, and it's right there in Arizona as an example, is Republican candidates who were very, very far right on the abortion issue are suddenly trying to soften their positions. Uh, Your Republican Senate candidate, Blake Masters, all of a sudden was trying to soften his position and saying that 
you know, it's different than what he had said in the past. And Republican candidates all over the country are removing their abortion positions from their websites or changing them or, you know, just basically trying to sound less radical than they were certainly during the primaries. What those developments tell you is that something is happening in the electorate. It is happening as a result of this issue. I mean, inflation is still high. Joe Biden is still old. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that were there beforehand, before Dobbs, that are still here. And the big difference is the Dobbs decision and I think the mobilization that it's causing. Before the Dobbs ruling came down, there was a widely accepted premise that you sort of alluded to just a moment ago that Republicans were going to do well in this midterm, certainly retake the House, maybe retake the Senate. But increasingly, it seems like the Senate may be slipping away and the gains in the House could be relatively small. Can you give us a sense of what kind of House races may be most susceptible to an outright change in the expected outcome? And what does it mean for other races that may not flip, but could get closer? Well, I think in the Senate, the Dobbs decisions can make a huge amount of difference because those are statewide races. So urban pockets in some of these red states can outvote the rural pockets. So that's what happened in Kansas, which is a very red state, when Kansas had an abortion referendum on the ballot and there was enormous turnout. Um, and in fact, the abortion referendum won 60 to 40. Nobody anticipated such a big win on that referendum. So I think in Senate races, it, it really could help keep the Senate in Democratic hands. And frankly, the Democrats got lucky because the Republicans, thanks to Trump, fielded some candidates in those Senate races who simply were not strong candidates. Again, you go back to your state, to Arizona, and Blake Masters is simply was not the strongest candidate in that race. If you go to Pennsylvania, uh, Dr. Oz was not the strongest candidate in the Republican primary. So across the country, Trump interfered to give the Republicans candidates that were very radical and probably less able to win a general election. So that was sort of luck for the Democrats. In the House, the Republicans will probably win just because there are so many seats. Every seat is up and there are so many close seats. But back in May, people were predicting a 60 vote margin for the Republicans. Nobody's predicting that anymore. Um, maybe the margin will be 10 to 20 Republicans. And that means that there will be constraints on what the Republicans can do if, say, Speaker McCarthy is this, becomes Speaker of the House. In the vote that just happened in the House right before they left for um, this break on police reform, nine Republicans joined the Democrats in voting for that. And there have been similar switches of Republicans joining Democrats in the House, small numbers. But nonetheless, if the Republican margin is small, those couple of Republicans who will vote with the Democrats from time to time make a difference. Finally, the districts where this will matter most are those suburban districts. Suburban districts have been the swing districts in our politics for some time now. They were the swing districts in 2020. The rural districts are still very, very much for Republicans. The 
hardcore urban districts, you know, the big cities are still very democratic. So the swing is still in those suburban districts. And I think that's why Republican women are so important, because they're the ones in those districts in the suburbs who will from time to time swing over and uh, vote for Democrats. I suspect there might be a lot of households this time around where the husband votes Republican and the wife votes Democratic. That can make things interesting around the dinner table, I'm sure. I've tried to come up with an analog to the present moment where an issue, a a development uh, that maybe had not been completely understood in advance really gets into affecting the outcome of this. I certainly remember 2008 with the Wall Street meltdown just before voting really took off in the presidential race involving John McCain and Barack Obama. We know how that one turned out. You also wrote about 2004 involving gay marriage on the ballot in several select places around the country. Talk about how much that issue mattered and how much anything in prior elections might suggest what could happen this time around. It's a good question. An issue can come into an election year and have an impact that is not anticipated. So in 2004, the Republicans consciously put an anti-gay marriage initiative on the ballot in Ohio and Michigan. In Ohio, it increased turnout to such a level among evangelical Christians, mostly, who wanted to vote against gay marriage, that most people credit George Bush's win in Ohio to the presence of that gay marriage initiative on the ballot. In other words, had John Kerry won Ohio, he would have won the presidency. It all hung on that. Now, it didn't always work because they also put a gay marriage initiative on the ballot in Michigan where it didn't help. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. What we're going to be looking at this time are abortion initiatives on the ballots in Michigan and Kentucky. Now, in Kentucky, there's not a Senate race and there's really no close House races. So what we'll look for is what's the margin? How much better do Democrats do in Kentucky than they did two years ago? In Michigan, there are three contested House races and a gubernatorial race and a Senate race, but those three House races are very close races. And people think that the abortion referendum on that ballot may, in fact, help the Democrats get, well, it would be one pickup and two holes of those close seats. So given that the margins in the House are so very close, there are only four seats, everything like that matters. I also think that what you're going to see based on Kansas and depending what happens in Michigan and Kentucky is in 2024, I think you're going to have a lot, a lot of abortion initiatives on the ballots in states, because after Kansas, everybody thinks this is the way to get around sort of old-fashioned and out-of-step state legislatures. Elaine, you were reading my mind. I was about to shift forward to 2024. I've thought for a while now that the greatest impact from uh, the Dobbs ruling politically could be felt in 2024 the effects of it will be clearer in two years than it is at the moment. And you'll also see impact in the form of more women running for office, more groups lining up financially around this type of issue. How reasonable does that sound that in 2024, we'll actually see a bigger fallout from this type of ruling? 
Oh, I think you'll see a huge fallout from it because, you know, remember the other thing that's going to happen by 2024 is we will realize just how difficult it is to enforce this ruling in any kind of fair and sensible way. You're going to have women dying from ectopic pregnancies. You're going to have women dying who needed to have that fetus removed because it was non-viable, because it was affecting their health, et cetera. You're going to have a lot of pain and a lot of tragedy. And every single one of those is going to make people think, you know, wait a minute, this isn't a good thing for the government to be involved in. Maybe we should just go back to leaving this decision up to a woman, her doctor, and her God and leave it at that because it's exactly the sort of thing, there's so much ambiguity that the government can never do a good job in this area. And I think this, as the confusion reigns, there's going to be a human cost to it. And that human cost is already becoming evident, but it's going to be really evident by 2024. Elaine, one last question here. Do you have a sense as to why there's so much intensity around this issue in the first place? Yeah, I think that what a lot of people don't realize, or a lot of men don't realize, is that starting with menstruation and going all the way up through menopause, reproduction is a central focus of women's lives. They talk about it a lot. They compare notes on their pregnancies, on their birthing, et cetera, all the way through their lives. This is central to women's lives in a way it just isn't to men. Men may pay attention to this when their wife is pregnant and they'll learn about all the scary things that can happen, but then they, they don't talk about it anymore. And I think because this is so central to women's lives, the notion of the government making decisions for you about things that are so dangerous. I'm here in, in Massachusetts right now. There's a graveyard, old, old graveyard near me. You walk through that graveyard and the number of women dead in their 20s is just phenomenal. And it's all from childbirth. It's a dangerous business pregnancy. And modern science has made us forget how dangerous it is, but it is the sort of thing that women and their doctors need to have a lot of flexibility to control. And therefore, I think this places this issue in a different category from what we should do about inflation or whether you think the student loans are a good idea or any of the other issues around there. This is fundamentally different and more personal for 51% of the population, 55% of the electorate. And I think that's really why we're going to see it have such an impact. Okay. Well, Elaine, we will have to leave it there. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with our listeners today. If they want to follow your work, where can they find you on Twitter and online? The best place to find me online is at Brookings, just uh, brookings.edu, and type in my name or type in FixGov, which is our blog, and we write for it regularly, and all these issues are on there. And um, I wish I could tell you my Twitter handle, but I've forgotten it because <laughs> I haven't used it in a while, but there is one. <laughs> we'll find it and embed it in the episode. That is it for today's episode, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions about the upcoming midterms? Maybe you're curious about another facet of Arizona's political landscape. 
Well, we want to hear from you. Send us a voicemail to 602-444-0804 or email us at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word, all spelled out. And don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. You can follow her at Kaylee Monahan. That's K-A-E-L-Y-M-O-N-A-H-A-N. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.